Welcome to the Mormons and Drugs podcast. I am Cody Nakoni. I just realized that I've gone the last two episodes without telling anyone my name. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, real professional, oh. uh, as you can tell. <laughs> I've been doing this a long time. Bad producer. <laughs> <laughs> Bad. Uh, we both have been doing this a while. Really good at this. Uh, <laughs> this is a weekly podcast where I discuss the shockingly frequent intersections of Mormonism, magic, and drugs. Joining me is my excellent and really experienced co-host, Mokdula. <laughs> Hi. This is Cody, by the way. <laughs> yeah. And uh, then, of course, I think Morticia is the only one. She's I, the only one that's like legitimately been She sleeps the whole time. Well. She's really useless. But I, I don't forget to introduce her. No, you don't. <laughs> so last week, we talked about the state of Christian magic and uh, psychoactive drugs at the time that the Smith family was forming. Uh, we then discussed the accounts of Lucy Mack and Joseph Sr., and the profound effect that such visionary testimonies had on the impressionable young Joseph Jr., the boy who later became the founding member of Mormonism. We ended our discussion with an overview of the very traumatic leg surgery young Joe underwent, which... And the broken. <laughs> yeah, I do like Joe the broken. I want to make that a, I want to make that a t-shirt. Yes. <laughs> uh, which left young Joe with a pronounced limp for the rest of his life and necessitated his particular work as the seer or scryer for Joe Sr.'s money-digging operations. This week, we finally get to the fun bits, uh, uh, discussing Joe and the Smith family's career as professional magicians in greater detail, uh, which we will probably be doing for the next few episodes. <laughs> uh, there's a lot to cover. The fun bits. So after some time, Joseph in his later career realized that being so open and honest about what he did as a teenager uh, probably wasn't the best move. So he tried to distance himself from this career. And in his early history, he wrote, after I went to live with Josiah Stoll, he took me with the rest of his hands to dig for the silver mine, at which I continued to work for nearly a month without success in our undertaking, and finally I prevailed with the old gentleman to cease digging after it. Hence arose the very prevalent story of mine having been a money digger. Mm. Uh-huh. A month. A month. So, Joseph, I don't want to say outright lies, <laughs> but totally fucking lies. Uh, right, at in that quote, as we'll see in the next few episodes, like I mentioned, he continues he, that he did that for a long time. Maybe as a it's child. the only time he actually dug, like actually did any hard labor. It's with probably it. the only time he got paid, is what okay. I think. Okay. <laughs> he's I, I want he's like I want to be the dude looking in the hat, just like pointing. Yeah, and and, and he <laughs> takes to it like a fish to water. We'll we'll show you why in a minute, but I, <laughs> um. I find it really interesting that uh, Joseph underplayed this so much. Um, I guess in a time before the internet, you you would assume you could people would forget this kind of thing. So in 1826, uh, approximately six to eight years after he started his career as a money digger, so a little bit longer than just a month for mm. one guy, um, he's arrested by local officials for juggling, which at the time was a, a common term for like being a con man <laughs> um so the uh, the idea that 
he did this for a month for one guy is a little hard to swallow when uh, a whole it was basically like a class action lawsuit. It was one. It was a bunch of people oh. who got conned out of some money, suing the court he was essentially all to over arrest town. him, um, and oh. he was found guilty. Um, <laughs> we'll cover it, like I said, but um, that seems to be his big switch from like I'm a I'm a magician and sorcerer to I'm a prophet mm. and a seer, which is actually I think pretty common for once the law steps in with some of these guys it's <laughs> yeah. like no 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 no! i didn't mean that i'm not it's 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 this it's this other thing it's this that's kind of a legal gray area yes and you can't hard legal gray area because which, you're christian too right which is why all these things all of a sudden become religion yeah so to better illustrate <laughs> just how uh uh, preposterous that idea of only doing this for a short time is a, a magical money digging toolkit of sorts has been uncovered by historians and convincingly linked to the Smith family. While polemics have tried to distance in Joseph Jr. from this novel collection, they've done so without reading the associated source material that was used to create it. Highly respected Mormon historians such as D. Michael Quinn and Dan Vogel, uh, John Brooke, who I've, I've quoted from, have all covered this in great detail. There are a number of items in this collection, including Joseph's seer stones, which we'll cover too. The ones I want to talk about first are the three separate lumen or parchment of summoning and protection magic, which would have been used for the explicit purpose of finding buried treasure. All of these items are of these Anakian magical systems, which were popularized by John Dee, uh, which were easily found in common magical texts, pamphlets, and manuscripts at the time. And Anakian is 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 calling on the angels. Anakian is, uh, yeah, calling on the angels. Um, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, Enoch was the prophet who uh, could speak directly with god and not die like in his his whole um his whole city was so righteous that god translated them into the heavens essentially just took the whole city and it was just a floating city for a while So tapping into enoch Mm -hmm. enoch's homies essentially uh well john d used an alphabetical code or I don't know what to describe it as. It was it was a language he described as a Nokian. It was okay. the language used by Enoch and Adam to speak with angels okay. and God. Okay. And the magical systems that he used used this language to interpret and and commune with those angels. And that's what all the these things mm-hmm. these symbols are on the parchments and the talismans. And yeah, like that. the the specific sigils I'm about to talk about are what distinguishes or like draws down these these celestial spirits okay. putting the phone line in or drawing them down <laughs> yeah uh you're kind of acting as a, a phone operator and hooking up the lines and then you got your can and your string <laughs> no yeah it's a bit like that sometimes <laughs> but um, they're beautiful symbols they are really cool actually if you look at the logo for the website the first sigil I'm about to describe is uh, Juban Ladas. Oh, we'll add more on the show notes. Yeah, or, we'll have yeah. actually in the show notes you can you, you can look at all three of these these lumen. We'll have pictures of them uh, up for you to look They're at. Gorgeous, or I think they are. <laughs> 
so these these things would have been found in common magical texts that I've already quoted from, such as Francis Barrett's The Magus or Celestial Intelligencer, published in 1801, Reginald Scott's The Discovery of Witchcraft, published in 1584, Ebenezer Sibley's A New and Complete Illustration of the Occult Sciences, published in 1795, and Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa's uh, Books of Occult Philosophy were just a few of these texts. Oddly enough, the magical toolkit we're going to discuss seems to have used a combination of at least three of those books I just mentioned. So this wasn't just like your average student that just glossed over one book. Uh, this was a pretty well-versed magical operator uh, that put this kit together. Were these kind of the best of the books, the three like top books? They For were, English speakers in America, yes. They're on Oprah's book list and everything. <laughs> yeah. So this first, uh, when you look at, uh, there's three magical parchments. One is known as the Holiness to the Lord parchment. The uh, other one is the Jehovah, Jehovah, Jehovah par- parchment. Uh, it's got a fun little like spiral prayer and some fun protective sigils. And then uh, the St. Peter bind them. One was essentially used to draw angels down and speak to them. Another one was used as a protection magic. And the third one, St. Peter bind them was a, like a house sigil that was supposed to like keep thieves away or like confuse people that meant you harm. Uh, uh, There was this, that one old book that we were going through of magic and it was like every other spell was keep thieves away. How to find (laughs) a thief, how to get the thief to give your stuff back. It's pretty how shocking just- <laughs> how much of these of these grimoires are occupied with uh, contacting spirits, asking them f- where to find buried treasure, and then once you have the buried treasure, how to f- keep it from being found by someone else. <laughs> um, and then it's a lot of it's, uh, here's how you get high and talk to spirits. Yeah. Here's how you maybe heal people that occasionally get sick. But mostly, like 80, we need to find some 70%, treasure. 70%, it was like... How to stop a thief? How to catch a thief? Like everyone's like, I thought it would be more like how to get her to love me. Not, yeah, not, not so as, much. Not as often. No. So when you look at the podcast logo, the uh, really cool squiggly lines, that is the symbol for Juban Ladas, uh, who is distinguished in the dominion of thrones as the appointed guardian of all public and national enterprises, where the good of society and the honor of God are unitedly concerned. He is delineated in all brightness of a celestial messenger, bearing a flaming sword. Keep that in mind. Remember the flaming sword? Joseph really liked the angels with flaming swords. I do, too. What young boy doesn't? Uh, (laughs) And this is the magical character by which he is distinguished. I'm reading, of course, from uh, Ebenezer Sibley's A New and Complete Illustration of Occult Sciences. That's where I'm getting this. The second character, Polypaw, is... uh, a minor character on one of the parchments, but it's friends of Pikachu. <laughs> it sounds like it. Catch them all. Yeah, go, go Polypop. <laughs> I choose you. Yeah. Another one of the celestial powers, uh, but this specific one is used to guard and forewarn such as our virgins and uncontaminated youths from all the evils of debauchery and prostitution, and to elevate the mind to a love of virtue, honor, and revealed religion. So it's for virgins. So it's useless <laughs> to us. It's for little perverted youths that are need to stay perverted youths. Useless. All right. Pass. Next one. <laughs> um, this one, so a lot of the polemic arguments against this is that it must have uh, been owned by Smith Sr. or Hiram 
or one of the other uh, people in the family. They try as hard as they can to distance this from Joseph Jr. However, as the acting uncontaminated youth and mm. virgin scryer, because he was like, <laughs> he was like in his early teens when he started doing this, and all of his brothers were a little older and perhaps had kissed a couple girls behind a barn or mm. something, mm. Uh, and were thus contaminated. Indeed. <laughs> um, this is, I think, th- this little symbol is the one that distinguishes this whole collection as Joseph's. Okay. Because it would have been used by the scryer or seer. Right. And he's the uh, one sitting in this. unanimously, everyone described him as being that, that right. the person in that position. The third is Nalga, devoted to the protection of those who are assaulted by evil spirits or witches. And this one is actually used as a preservative against witchcraft and suicide. Oh. Um, the three particular angels that are, are being summoned on this parchment, on this set of parchment are really reflective of like Joseph's mind as a child. He seems to have like bouts of depression or just kind of like in the dumps. Uh, he seems hyper concerned about his salvation and his, the sins he's committed. Um, and again, this is probably because of his position in the, the money digging groups. Um, well, yeah, he's got to sit there probably all the time with his bad leg. Everyone else gets to run outside and help and play. Well, and as we'll see, this was probably the first taste of what being in a position of power or like being a needed person in the group. I I imagine as growing up the way he did, being sick all the time, it seemed, that he was used to being the the one everyone had to look after. And this was like the first taste he seemed to have got of the spotlight's on me. And everyone looks to me to know what to do. And I think he really liked that. He might have played it up too for him. Be like, you're important. Oh, for like, sure. You're helping. Um, he had a one particular mentor who kind of took him under his wing, magically speaking. Uh, clearly, Joseph Sr. was competent, and so was Lucy Mack, and they obviously taught Joseph a lot about magic. But there's one particular guy we're going to talk about in the money digging group that seems to have really been like, you are a special kid. It's the Yoda to I, his <laughs> The really, really fucked up Yoda. Ugh. Oh, no. um, not a baby Yoda. Okay, this so is a really Emperor gross fucked up. Darth? Yeah, that's better. Okay, cool. That's better. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you're right. Sorry. <laughs> um, so aside from these parchments, there's also uh, an inscribed ceremonial knife bearing an astrological symbol for Scorpio, as well as the sigils for the seal and intelligences of Mars. Uh, and you can find the how-to for this particular knife in Francis Barrett's The Magus. Uh, this knife would have been used mainly to draw magic circles or to make animal sacrifices, as Joseph Sr. and Jr. were reported to do. Also worth noting that ceremonial knives are sometimes used to collect herbs that are to be later used for ritualistic purposes. Uh, one account... It's kind of a built-in prayer. Yeah. Uh, one particular account is a little lengthy, but I want to read it to you because it uh, specifically highlights this knife getting used in a, in a kind of dark way. Oh. And also illustrates the uh, perhaps con artistry of the Smith family and the fact that their neighbors usually were keen on this and figured out that, hey, I just got conned. Um, (laughs) Just really dumb, though, to do all your neighbors. But I guess it's kind of hard to go farther out and then go. Yeah, it's a whole don't shit where you eat. Yeah. Uh, well, this this comes from neighbor William Stafford, who we'll talk about again later. And this is still in Vermont, do you know? Or uh, they... This is in New York. Okay. Uh, they kind of roamed around, but right. this That's particular account is from uh, when their Palmyra Manchester days. 
Quote, they lived at that time in Palmyra, about one mile and a half from my residence. A great part of their time was devoted to digging for money, especially in the nighttime, when they said the money could be most easily obtained. I have heard them tell marvelous tales respecting the discoveries that they had made in their peculiar occupation of money digging. They would say, for instance... What if I only did that for a month? Just <laughs> For instance, that in such a place, in such a hill, on a certain man's farm, there were deposited keys, barrels, and hogshead of coined silver and gold, bars of gold, golden images, brass kettles filled with gold and silver, gold candlesticks, swords, etc., etc. This is what they found? This is what this guy's reporting they bragged about finding. Got it. This poor and largely destitute family. Yes. Um, They would say also that nearly all of the hills in this part of New York were thrown up by human hands, and in them were large caves, which Joseph Jr. could see by placing a stone of a singular appearance in his hat, in such a manner as to exclude all the light, like we mentioned last episode, Uh, at which time they pretended he could see all things within and under the earth, that he could see within the above-mentioned caves large gold bars and silver plates, that he could also discover the spirits in whose charge these treasures were, clothed in ancient dress. At certain times, these treasures could be attained very easily. At others, the obtaining of them was difficult. The facility of approaching them depended in great measure on the state of the moon. New moon and Good Friday, I believe, were regarded as the most favorable times for obtaining these treasures. These tales I regarded as visionary. So he's basically saying I I, I didn't think this was real. Uh, However, being prompted by curiosity, I at length accepted one of their invitations to join them in their nocturnal excursions. I will now relate a few incidents attending those excursions. So he went drinking with them. (laughs) <laughs> I th- the way a lot of these this is framed like before Netflix and chill yeah <laughs> was this is what the guys went out and did they yeah. get a little s- fucked you up you do and what you look in we an did X-ray some magic hat? we dug some holes we saw some spirits all right you got good you got good shit all right let's <laughs> let's go let's go <laughs> uh, uh, Professor Carl Ruck of Boston University commented on this and uh, he actually thinks and as we'll see Joseph had a um, a fascination with Josephus. Josephus. He was an early uh, Christ- writer of Christianity, uh, and he, in a like a weird uh, sidewind, just gives this explicit magical uh, operation for extracting mandrake roots. Involved- Josephus does, mm-hmm. okay. uh, and it involves like tying a leash to a dog that okay. is connected to yeah. the mandrake, and then the dog rips out the mandrake. So and- many of those. Yeah, that all comes one from Josephus. Them, one of them I heard they tie it to a virgin's toe and have her naked crab walk oh, away. Really? Yeah. Maybe Joseph was getting a little freaky. Perverted. <laughs> I was like, she's naked doing this? Gosh. Well, uh, Carl Ruck uh, p- uh, put forward that perhaps the money digging was them searching for mandrake roots. Okay. Oh. Which I thought is actually really plausible. Okay. And given Joseph Sr.'s favoritism uh, That makes favoritism way more sense to me because towards... this is a lot of wasted time. Mm-hmm. Uh, given Joseph Sr.'s favoritism towards uh, Datura, this would also uh, – you you dig up the roots. The roots are probably the most psychoactive part of the oh, plant. Yeah. Also, when you dig up and disturbed sites in a wild forest, you mm-hmm. often create the perfect environment for mushrooms. So if you dig a, dig a big old hole and you come back the next moon – there's a slight possibility that you've created the perfect environment for mushrooms to grow. Interesting. This is another possible reason they were doing this. Uh, back to the quote. 
Joseph Smith Sr. came to me one night and told me that Joseph Jr. had been looking in his glass and had seen, not many rods from his house, two or three kegs of gold and silver some feet under the surface of the earth, and that none other but the elder Joseph and myself could get them. I accordingly consented to go, and early in the evening repaired to the place of deposit. Joseph Sr. first made a circle, twelve or fourteen feet in diameter. This circle, said he, contained the treasure." He then stuck in the ground a row of witch hazel sticks around the circle for the purpose of keeping off the evil spirits. Within the circle, he made another of about eight or ten feet in diameter. He walked around three times on the periphery of this last circle, muttering to himself something which I could not understand. He next stuck a steel rod in the center of the circle and then enjoyed profound silence upon us, lest we should arouse the evil spirit who had the charge of these treasures. After we had dug a trench about five feet in depth around the rod, the old man, by signs and motions, asked us leave of absence, and went to the house to inquire of young Joseph the cause of our disappointment. No! <laughs> he soon returned and said that Joseph had remained all this time in the house, looking in his stone, watching the motions of the evil spirit, and he saw that the spirit came up to the ring, and as soon as it beheld the cone which we had formed around the rod, it caused the money to sink. We then went into the house, and the old man observed that we had made a mistake in the commencement of the operation. If I had not been for that, said he, we would have got the money. So, I don't know if uh, they were charging. <laughs> I, this seems to me like a, hey, we have this this money. You should come out and have a good time with us. Also, uh, I get paid like $3 a day to do this. Uh, so, you know, I'll give you all the, it's on your land. I just need like $3 a day to do this. For my time. For my time. You know, but Um, you can keep the rest. (laughs) And this seems to be how these guys operated. Uh, We'll Mm. we'll, we'll find another guy who actually, that's how he operated. So, okay. Well, that would make a lot of sense. This next uh, account from the same guy illustrates the knife that I was talking about. Okay. And uh, it's just, it's, it's good. (laughs) At another time, they devised a scheme by which they might satiate their hunger with the mutton of one of my sheep. They had seen in my flock of sheep a large, fat, black weather. Old Joseph and one of the boys came to me one day and said that Joseph Jr. had discovered some very remarkable and valuable treasures which could be procured only in one way. That way was as follows. That a black sheep should be taken on the ground where the treasures were concealed. That after cutting its throat, it should be led around a circle while bleeding. This being done, the wrath of the evil spirit would be appeased. The treasures could then be obtained, and my share of them was to be fourfold. To gratify my curiosity, I let them have a large fat sheep. They afterwards informed me that the sheep was killed pursuant to commandment, but that there was some mistake in the process. It did not have the desired effect. This, I believe, is the only time they ever made money digging a profitable business. They, however, had around them constantly a worthless gang whose employment it was to dig money nights and who, daytimes, had more to do with mutton than money. When they found that the people of this vicinity would no longer put any faith in their schemes for digging money, they then pretended to find a gold Bible, of which they said the Book of Mormon was only an introduction. (laughs) So, the same knife that we have in collection is very likely the same knife that was used to kill this black sheep in what would be considered by most Christians to be quite the diabolical act. Um, Like we contextualized in the last episode, that's not necessarily the case that, you know, you would be doing all of this under the sanction and word of God and that you were, you know, performing these rites to satiate evil and uh, hungry spirits. 
So <laughs> is that it? Just it, it seems funny to me that huh? Is that anything? Is anything in Anakian? Do they talk about sacrifices or do you not know? Oh, uh, they have their own deals that you strike, but a lot of that comes from the the grimoires we've talked about. It's really interesting to me that so many of their neighbors would be so specific about all of these scenes that happened when he only did this for a month. Allegedly. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So yeah. But, I mean, he was inside with the hat, or he... <laughs> well, he didn't stay inside, as we'll see. He he got <laughs> he real outside. involved. Yeah. <laughs> um. So kind of polishing off the the toolkit that we're talking about and the thing that Joseph used more than anything was a seer stone that was about, I think, six inches across uh, and like four or five inches wide. It was, it was kind of egg-shaped, had dark brown and black kind of marbling through it. It was a really cool looking stone, but he found this stone while digging a well for one of his neighbors, who uh, an, a man named Willard Chase, who was another member of this money digging group <laughs> and him and his sister, his sister was actually quite the renowned seer in that area. She uh, had a reputation long before Joseph senior and Joseph junior came around. And uh, apparently they asked to use a couple of her seer stones from time to time, but she always refused them. Interesting. Uh, so Joseph got his seer stone, like I said, from the, while digging a well for his neighbor, Willard chase. I'm not going to read you the quote. It's super long. But essentially, uh, they found they find this stone. Joseph immediately puts it in his hat and looks in the hat and is like, "Oh, I can see all sorts of things." And so it's uh, a good one. Yeah, and and Willard Chase, being one of these guys who his sister does this, was like, "Okay, that's my stone." <laughs> and uh, they apparently didn't want to give it back and asked to borrow it. And so when he, he let them do so, he began. <laughs> I'll, I'll just read this one sentence from, from the quote. After obtaining the stone, he began to publish abroad what wonders he could discover by looking at it, and made so much disturbance among the credulous part of the community that I ordered the stone be returned to me again. <laughs> um, and he apparently had it for about two years before Willard Chase was like, dude, give just that back. Just give me back my stone. Give me back my stone. Give You're me making my- me look like a dick now. <laughs> um, and a couple years later, or some time later, uh, Joseph sent Hiram, his older brother, over to Willard Chase to ask for the stone again. Damn. And, uh, it's a really pretty rock. He, <laughs> it was really uh, uh, important to these guys, yeah. And he basically said, I'll give you this stone if you agree to give it back when I call for it. And when I gave it – or he says when I gave it to him, I thought I could rely on his word at the time as he had made a profession of his religion. But in this I was disappointed for he disregarded both his word and his honor. Uh, so basically Hiram just talks him into giving him the stone and just F's off and, uh, starts Mormonism with his brother. Um, is this one of the ones that's really shown a lot in the books that you've shown me before? Is this the same stone? The one with, yeah, yeah. yeah. The one with the little circles? We'll have a, we'll have pictures of the, basically the entire magical collection in the show notes for anyone that wants to look at the, the website. So yeah, uh, one more quick, uh, before we move on to the, uh, the magical mentors, I just want to read one more quote from Martin Harris, who is one of the three witnesses, one of the founding members of Mormonism. 
he this is just another delightful account of uh, the happenings of this money digging group quote mr stowell was at this time at mr smith's digging for money it was reported by these money diggers that they had found boxes but before they could secure them they would sink into the earth a candid old <laughs> drat a candid old Presbyterian told me that on the Siskohenna Flats, he dug down to an iron chest, that he scraped off the dirt with his shovel, but had nothing with him to open the chest, that he went away to get help, and when he came to it, it moved away two or three rods into the earth, and they could not get it. There were a great many strange sights. One time, the old log schoolhouse south of Palmyra was suddenly lighted up and frightened them away. Samuel Lawrence, who uh, Samuel Lawrence is a guy you want to remember. He comes up again a few times. Sam. Told me that while they were digging, a large man who appeared to be eight or nine feet high came and sat on the ridge of a barn and motioned them that they must leave. They motioned back that they would not, but that they <laughs> afterwards became frightened and did leave. At another time, while they were digging, a company of horsemen came and frightened them away. These things were real to them, I believe, because they were told to me in confidence and told by different ones, and their stories agreed, and they seemed to be in earnest. I knew they were in earnest. So Bigfoot shows up <laughs> on the barn next door and is like, get out of my treasure spot. No, dude. No. No, I, I dug this hole. <laughs> and as we'll see, Martin Harris is perhaps not the most uh, reliable witness. Uh, uh, I just – it. Was speaking to the sort of uh, schoolboy fun that they obviously were having with each other in the middle of the night just to, like, kill time, yeah. it, it seems pretty apparent to me. Sounds like they were just out running about tripping balls, but... <laughs> and I'm not... Uh, <laughs> they could be doing magic together. I just... I don't think you would you would be doing it this regularly and such hard work. <laughs> Frankly, you're digging giant holes. Yeah. Like, and I mean giant. Some of these holes were, like, 100 feet across. It's. I don't know why you would do that as a pastime for that long. No, with, unless, unless you're harvesting something. Unless you're really getting something out of it, yeah. yeah. And being that they never really seem to uh, come into money, yes. seems like the the worthwhile part of this was probably herb or mushroom collecting. So, uh, at least a few other church members use seer stones. Like I said, this whole group kind of followed each other around and started the Mormon faith. They all knew each other. And like I said at the top of the episode, Joseph had to sort of distance himself from all of this later down the line after he the church was founded. Distance himself from the magic, but not yeah. his friends. No, <laughs> the magic, yes. Uh, specifically using seer stones. And from Michael Quinn's book, he, he's, he notes that Newell K. Whitney, for example, not only received a patriarchal blessing in 1835 at Kirtland through Joseph Smith's seer stone, but Whitney's brother later stated, Mormon elders and women at Kirtland often searched the riverbed for stones with holes caused by the sand washing out to peep into. And so, some members were so devoted to the importance of seer stones, like uh, David Whitmer, John Whitmer, and Hiram Page, his uh, kids, that they later dated the beginning of their own disenchantment with Mormonism at the time when Joseph Smith stopped using the seer stones. Oh. So that was like, they're like, oh, Joseph's not a prophet if he's not using seer stones. So that's how important this was to a lot of these guys. Joseph, so where he picked all of this up and who this – someone educated had to have put this this kit together for him. And while it very easily could have been Joseph Sr., I think the more likely candidate is a guy named Lumen Walters. Joseph is reported by several sources. Uh, 
by this I mean Mormon historians, uh, to have picked up his ceremonial magical uh, repertoire and toolkit after meeting and working with a man named Lumen Walters. Uh, and this is the guy that showed interest in this clearly intelligent, though largely uneducated pupil. And by that, went, do you mean the Smith family? <clears throat> Joseph, Joseph Jr. Just, just Joseph. Uh, they all worked together as money diggers. Right. But for whatever reason, Lumen Walters seemed to really latch on to Joseph Jr. Hmm. Gotta look up his birthday. A quote from Abner Cole, the satiricist and uh, newspaper journalist for the Palmyra, Manchester area. This is him writing as Abner Cole non-satirically. A quote, it is well known that Joe Smith never pretended to have any communion with angels until long period after the pretended finding of his book, and that the juggling of himself or father, meaning con artistry, went no further than the pretended faculty of seeing wonders in a peepstone and the occasional interview with the spirit, supposed to have the custody of hidden treasures. And it also equally known that a vagabond fortune teller by the name of Walters, who then resided in the town of Sotus and was once committed to jail of this county for juggling, was the constant companion and bosom friend of those money-digging imposters. There remains but little doubt in the minds of those all acquainted with these transactions that Walters, who sometimes was called the Conjurer, and was paid $3 a day for his services by the money diggers in the neighborhood, first suggested to Smith the idea of finding a book. Walters, the better to carry on his own deception with those ignorant and deluded people who employed him, had procured an old copy of Cicero's orations in the Latin language, out of which he read long and loud to his credulous hearers, uttering at the same time an unintelligible jargon which he would afterwards pretend to interpret and explain, as a record of the former inhabitants of America, and a a particular account of the numerous situations where they had deposited their treasures previous to the final extirpation. Uh, so he's he's basically saying Walters would uh, con the con artists mm. by getting hired by the money diggers to go be the seer for them, and he would perform these really elaborate ceremonial rituals, and which he just made up, <laughs> and he would read from a book of Latin that looked really impressive, and he would probably speak what he considered the Adamic language or the Anakian language. Okay, so it's related in that sense that he was faking it <laughs> you don't think he actually uh i don't know i i don't there's very few people that can even like understand Anakian uh, or translate it much okay. less speak it aloud in in ceremony like this there's not a lot of people especially <laughs> people like him and this type of behavior you'll actually see joseph use later in as like an adult so this is like a this is a con that he picked up, and I, I seriously see this as just a con man who's like, "You're the smart one in the group. Come mm-hmm. here. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to teach you the good stuff." Mm-hmm. And well, and uh, it's worth mentioning that Cole, the the contemporary journalist at the time that's covering all of this, oh right, is <laughs> he basically says Joseph never talked to angels or any of this crap before Walters showed up, and it wasn't until after Walters showed up and told him that he should find a book right. that he started pretending that he found a gold Bible. I'm really so glad this the guy's whole there. idea. He's like the tattletale. Uh, I know. He's, he's, he's like the, uh, he's the fifth grade tattletale. <laughs> well, he's, yeah. Anyway, sorry. It's okay. We'll cut that out. Sorry. I interrupted you. Cause I just love this imagery of like, um, um, actually he didn't, 
<laughs> he didn't talk to angels before that guy. Well, they all knew him. Like so, um, Joseph in the town of Palmyra in Manchester as a teenager was kind of like the local scamp that would show up in town with no shoes on and uh, go to the printing office and like get some newspapers for his dad and then walk a couple miles back home and like screw off in town. Uh, in the next few episodes, when we get closer to his founding of Mormonism, I'll show you a few more of the cons that he he committed <laughs> uh, towards the people of Palmyra, Manchester. Who? Joseph Jr. Okay. Uh, and this is all after he met Lumen Walters. And I think everybody in town kind of figured out pretty quickly when Joseph started getting really good at this stuff. It mm-hmm. was it was after he was hanging out with that guy who we had to kick out. Okay. So, uh, Abner Cole going on, just re- there's like one more paragraph. So far did this imposter carry this diabolical farce that not long previous to the pretended discovery of the Book of Mormon, Walters assembled his nightly band of money diggers in the town of Manchester at a point designated in his magical book and drawing a magic circle around the laborers with the point of an old rusty sword and using sundry other incantations for the purpose of appropriating the spirit absolutely sacrificed a fowl or a rooster in the presence of his awe-stricken companions to the fowl spirit whom ignorance had created the guardian of the hidden wealth and after digging until daylight his deluded employers retired to their several habitations fatigued and disappointed if the crucial reader will examine the book of mormon he will directly perceive that in many instances the style of the bible from which it is chiefly copied has been entirely altered for the worse <laughs> In many instances, it has been copied upwards without reference to chapter or verse, taking Jeremiah for an example, and that the Old and New Testament have been promiscuously intermingled with this simple alteration of names, etc., with some interpolations which may be easily discovered by want of grammatical arrangement. So again, uh, Abner Cole, basically, the very um, elaborate ceremonies that Joseph begins to pick up, like drawing circles with the rusty sword and all this stuff, is after his uh, his time with Walters. And then he gives a very uh, – gives a, some, a shady read on, on uh, the Book of Mormon, and it's actually pretty accurate. It, it's – basically said it's plagiarized largely from the Bible and poorly. <laughs> and uh, it, it you can really tell if you're a student at all of the Bible and just know basic grammar. Right, He's which most people... Calling Joseph a bad writer. Didn't back then, right? Yeah, That's- yeah. And Abner Cole was clearly really educated. The fact that he could look at a guy... Uh, with Cicero's orations in front of him in Latin, and he could point it, but that's Cicero's orations, where yeah. the rest of the town was like, but he's speaking a language we don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? And he's yeah. got a sword and a toe. He killed a chicken. <laughs> um, yeah. He fools pretty much everyone but Cole, and that's why I love Cole so much, is because Cole calls everybody out and publishes it in his newspaper. Yeah. And then when he wants to get real dirty and fifth grader about it, he publishes <laughs> under a pseudonym and is just like, I don't know who Ab- <laughs> Je- Obadiah Dogberry? That's, that sounds like something hanging off of a dog's mind. Like, He's just the perfect, like, oh. uh, troll for this situation. Yeah, he really is. <laughs> Now, Walters was operating the same treasure digging groups as the Smith family, like I mentioned. And in 1822 and 1823, Walters served as a seer for a treasure dig on the property of Abner Cole in Palmyra, which is probably why he didn't like Walters. Essentially, Abner Cole owned a piece of property and it was just vacant. And the money digging group 
asked for permission to dig there, mm-hmm. promising him a bunch of money. Yeah. And because it didn't really affect him, he was just like, okay, cool. And then they dug big old holes all over his property and then just screwed off. And he was justifiably pissed about it because they didn't find anything and they just ruined his property. But was he paying them? Uh, I don't believe he was paying them, okay. but he may have been milked out of some money for like, hey, we need you know like digging supplies. We need a pick and a shovel. And he needs a new rusty sword. And it, that I think that's where most of the ire comes out uh, of of Cole is is that Walters and the Smiths and all these guys he really doesn't like. <clears throat> probably okay. that sounds pretty good actually, legit. So they say, hey, we need this money for our tools, which we already have, but we won't say that. Well, this is all speculation on my part. I'm oh, just yeah. like, no, but we know sounds- that Abner got screwed over out of some kind of money and he was pissed at these guys. And that makes the most sense to me. Yeah. Because he was so rational and so even headed about this and clearly didn't believe in any of it. It sounds like something somebody would do when you're just like, yeah, that that's not going to hurt me. Whatever. Just go. Okay. You're going to give me half? <laughs> okay. Okay. We'll see how that works out. And a month later, you're like, what did you do to my property? <laughs> Have you read that book, Holes? <laughs> um, so, speaking of Lumen Walters, this is from Lance Owen's article, Joseph Smith and the Kabbalah. Quote, he was also a distant cousin of Joseph's future wife, Emma Hale. So, there's a familial con- connection there that uh, lasts long b- beyond this little brief period of money digging. Wait, who's related to Emma? L- Lumen Walters is oh. a distant cousin of Emma, his future wife. Oh, Okay. Or Joseph's future wife. Right, right. As Quinn notes, Brigham Young described the unnamed New York magician as having traveled extensively through Europe to obtain profound learning, and others identified Walter as a physician who studied mesmerism in Europe before meeting Joseph Smith. Walter family uh, records and legend called him a clairvoyant. If these statements are generally accurate, Walter had considerable knowledge of hermetic traditions. During this period in Europe, and to a lesser degree in America, a physician in the interests of mesmer, magic, clairvoyance, and profound learning moved in a milieu nurtured by the legacies of hermeticism. By definition, such a physician stood in a tradition dominated by medical and esoteric writings of Paracelsus, steeped in alchemy and associated closely with Rosicrucian philosophy. So, we know he traveled through England and France for academic reasons, and he returned to the States in early 1818 as a self-proclaimed ceremonial magician and medical doctor. Uh, Lumen seemed to hop around every few months, quickly wearing out his welcome with his developing abilities uh, as a con man. Sometime in the late August of 1818, Lumen Walters escaped from jail in Hillsborough <laughs> County, New Hampshire, convicted of imposing himself upon the credulity of people in this vicinity by a pretended knowledge of magic, palmistry, conjuration, etc., and a corresponding conduct was yesterday apprehended by civil authority. By early September of the same year, Lumen Walter arrived in Ontario County, New York, and ingrained himself within the magical or more suggestible community there. This is from John Brooks' Refiner's Fire. Uh, so he moves in around 1819, and by 1820, he's hanging out with the Smiths. Okay. And he is supposed to have left by about 1823, and Joseph continues his, his magical career and is finally arrested in 1826, which we'll get to. Uh, and that, so that's just a rough timeline. So, so Joseph you, is, sorry, 1818. 
Joseph was born in 1805. Oh, so he's like 13, 13 or 14. Okay. When he meets Lumen, he's like 14 or 15. And Lumen is the one that's like, hey, you, you're uh, you're the one. You seem a little clever. Um, now just, I we're going to kind of cover some of the same stuff, but I want you to get a feel for Abner Cole writing as Obadiah Dogberry. Okay. Um, so th- this is from the Book of Pukei. <laughs> That he wrote as a satirical take on the Book of Mormon when he was seeing it get published. So he watched these guys do this for over a decade. He watched all this happen in this small New York town and published about it for years. And then finally, when they published the Book of Mormon, he publishes the Book of Pukei as like (laughs) a joke on the whole town as like, are you, are all of you going to let him do this? (laughs) Um. And in there with his binoculars. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little rear window, yeah. Um, for those of you that have read the Book of Mormon, uh, when I start to read this, you'll instantly get the, the satiricism because this is how the Book of Mormon is written. Mm. Verse <clears throat> 1. And it came to pass in the latter days that wickedness did much abound, and the idle and slothful said to one another, Let us send for Walters the magician, who has strange books and deals with familiar spirits. Peradventure he will inform us where the Nephites hid their treasure. So be it that we and our vagabond van do not perish for lack of sustenance. Now, Walters, the magician, was a man unseemly to look upon, and to profound ignorance added the most consummate imprudence. The summons of the idle and slothful and produced an old book in an unknown tongue, which Cicero's orations in Latin, from whence he read in the presence of the idle and slothful strange stories of hidden treasures and of the spirit who had custody thereof. And the idle and slothful paid tribute to the, unto the magician, and besought him, saying, Oh, thou art wise above all men, and can interpret the book that no man understandeth, and can discover hidden things by the power of thy enchantments. Lead us, we pray thee, to the place where the Nephites buried their treasure, and give us power over the spirit, and we will be thy servants forever. And the magician led the rabble into a dark grove in a place called Manchester, where after drawing a magic circle with a rusty sword and collecting his motley crew of ladder demalions, within the center he sacrificed a cock, a bird sacred to Minerva for the purpose of propitiating the Prince of Spirits. Uh, moving down a few verses, because it's a lot of this. <laughs> he really paid attention. Oh, it's good. It's it's on point. It's like the Weird Al Yankovic of... Joseph. Yes, that's the that's the that he is the Weird Al Yankovic of Palmyra, Manchester. <laughs> uh, verse seven. And it came to pass that when the idle and slothful became weary of their nightly labors, they said unto one another, Lo, this imp of the devil hath deceived us. Let us know more of him, or peradventure ourselves, our wives, and our little ones will become chargeable on the town. Now when Walters the magician heard these things, he was sorely grieved, and he said unto himself, Lo, mine occupation is gone. Even these ignorant vagabonds and idle and slothful detect mine impostures. I will away and hide myself, lest the strong arm of the law bring me to justice. (laughs) (laughs) And he took his book and his rusty sword and his magic stone and his stuffed toad and all the implements of witchcraft and retired to the mountains near Great Sudas Bay, where he holds communion with the devil even unto this day. (laughs) Now the rest of the acts of the magician, how his mantle fell upon Prophet Joe Smith Jr., and how Joe made a league with the spirit, who afterwards turned out to be an angel. 
and how he obtained the gold Bible, spectacles, and breastplate. Will they not be faithfully recorded in the book of Pukii? <laughs> I just, oh God, I love him. I love him so much. Oh my gosh. Um, so he makes this, this is like a, this is like a good, this could even be like a good take on Lord of the Rings. <laughs> it's, it kind of sounds like he's, he's Sauron, like retreating into the mountains yes. with my sword and rings and toads. Does that? My seer stones. Does that make Joseph Gandalf? No, it certainly doesn't. No. <laughs> Joseph is more like uh, Smeagol. Okay. Or maybe Wormtongue. Yeah, maybe okay. Wormtongue. Okay, um, that makes sense. So recently, a few <clears throat> years ago, uh, Bryce Blankenagle, uh, a research partner of mine, discovered some information surrounding Lumen Walters and his professional life after a brief time uh, with the Saints in Kirtland. So, oh, I f- failed to mention this. While he moved away from this group of money diggers, I'm horrible at this. While Lumen, okay. <laughs> moved away from this group of money diggers, as was described by Abner Cole oh, just he now. Retreated into the, he retreated into the, the mountains. mountains. When the when the Mormons eventually made their way to Kirtland, apparently some of uh, Lumen's family was living there, obviously because Emma was his distant cousin and some of the early Mormons were related to her. So it makes sense that his sister was living in Kirtland. Um, and it, I think in charge of the Relief Society there for a time. Anyway, uh, he apparently moved to Kirtland with the early saints for a while. And after I think his wife passed away, he moved up to Gorham, New York, uh, where he became a tincture and uh, herb doctor, bespeaking to his probably well-versed uh, repertoire of drugs. So Bryce Blankenagel went to Gorham, New York oh, really? a few years ago oh. and just like tore through uh <gasps> county records that were like a few a couple hundred years old uh it was super cool and he found some really fun stuff on microfilm that i'm about to read from uh if you are unaware of bryce Blankenagel, he runs the naked mormonism podcast which is a lot of fun and i highly recommend it so yeah he found all of the following quote these are from some of these are from his uh, obituaries that were published in the the county newspaper. Lumen's uh, from Lumen's obituaries, okay. yeah. Quote: We have often heard it remarked that fools are not all dead yet. We are convinced of the fact by a letter which has been placed in our hands, of which the following is a verbatim copy. Dr. Walters, to whom it is addressed, has some reputation as a physician skilled in the curative properties of roots and yarbs and brandy, but that he brings to his aid a conjuration stone, as believed in by this Vermont doctor, surpasses the credulity of Dr. Walters' neighbors. Another one. Dr. L. Walters, for many years, has been known as a successful but eccentric practitioner of the medical profession, died in, at his residence in Bethel, Ontario County on Saturday last. He stylized himself a seer and clairvoyant doctor and has effected many wonderful cures. Uh, well, it sounds like he was relatively respected, at least. Yeah, I mean, most of his cons at the, the later part of his life just seemed to be like finding lost cattle and like helping. He was he was a country doctor and he did right. seem to help a lot of people. Yeah, so, I mean, it was, you know. <laughs> while I find his early career interesting and uh, a little... Uh, I mean, they said eccentric. He definitely was eccentric. 
I would say a little bit more nefarious when he was younger. <laughs> he seems to have like toned it down and just like, I'm just going to be a country doctor and get high in my, my house. I, I don't want to move anymore was yeah. what I think. <laughs> so he, he retired to Gorham and that's where he finished out his life. Uh, that's where he died. Joseph, again, as we get into the later episodes, um, we got to wrap up soon. These are practices that will we'll see over and over, like the reading from a book and pretending to know what it says. Mm. There's, uh, from the speaking in tongues days, like early Mormonism had a lot of that, like that gibberish talk that you'll see like Pentecostals do today. Yeah. Um, they did that and they were pretending or claiming to speak Adamic or Enochian when they did it. Okay. They were just speaking gibberish <laughs> and rolling around <laughs> on the floor, but that was the idea. It was a lot of this seems to have stemmed from, the interaction with Walters. For example, when uh, Walters uh, would pretend to interpret uh, and then he would make claims about the early inhabitants of America and give out like, oh, there's treasure built, buried here and here and this spirit is guarding this and he would talk about the Native Americans. Uh, this is clearly something Joseph picked up at this time because of this particular um, quote I'm about to read from Lucy Mack Smith, his mother, who during this time when he's 14 or 15 and working with Walters notices a significant change in Joseph's uh, behavior at okay. home. <clears throat> Quote, during our evening conversations, Joseph would occasionally give us some of the most amusing recitals that could be imagined. He would describe the ancient inhabitants of this continent, their dress, mode of travelings, and the animals upon which they rode, their cities, their buildings, with every particular, their mode of warfare, and also their religious worship. This he would do with so much ease, seemingly as if he had spent his whole life among them. Unquote. So, Big old imagination. He has a very, very active imagination. He is actually, he's probably incentivized to have an active imagination because yeah. it helps all of the money digging con artists. Yeah, do. yeah. Um, I'm not trying to uh, uh, disparage those who practice magic, but clearly the Smith family was uh, acted as con artists for a time. Right. No, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> um, no. And this ability to kind of make up things on the spot that nobody can really verify because it's the 1800s and they just didn't know any better is he's clearly testing the waters with his own abilities after meeting Walters. And he does it with his family. And like I said, he, for the first time gets to be center stage. Mm -hmm. I am the, the center of attention. I am the entertainment for the evening. And it, he has two older brothers that used to be the center of attention. This is probably (laughs) intoxicating for a kid like Joseph. And like I said, we have to wrap it up, but this is where we'll kind of leave things off where Joseph has now met his mentor. He's nice and prepped to uh, kind of fly on his own little bird. Lumen has left you and you have the mantle of uh, Palmyra con man upon you. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, we'll watch him become a pariah in the community in the next few years until he gets arrested in 1826. (laughs) Um, So moral of the story is get a good mentor. You got to get a good mentor. Pick them good. good. Drunk dad wasn't doing a good Mm -hmm. job anymore. So I I found that guy that can pretend to speak Latin. (laughs) Um, Cool. And I'm sure probably told him how to break out of jail or get out of... As we'll see in future episodes, Joseph breaks out of jail more than once. uh, I mean, it sounds like Walters also has been arrested for juggling a many a time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, uh, thank you all for listening. Uh, We'll see you next week.
when we talk more about Joseph and his uh, wonderful cons around the Palmyra, Manchester area. Okay, well, I have some really pretty stones I want to show you. Oh, yeah. yeah. I smell tamales, too. Um, yeah. Tamales! <laughs> <laughs>